Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith Podcast here at Outsider Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Y'all know I'm a 90s country nerd. Uh, it's my favorite era. I think it's the greatest era in the history of the genre. And one of the titans of that era is with me here today. Tracy Lawrence, you guys know his catalog. He's had so many number one hits. He's had so many resonant songs. And he's one of those keen voices of that era that helped shape the magnitude of that era. You're gonna learn a lot about Tracy in this conversation, his path to country music superstardom, and how ego can creep in really, really quickly when you achieve success as quickly as Tracy did. This was one of the coolest conversations I've ever had to, uh, had the opportunity to have, and I'm really grateful that Tracy took the time. Y'all are gonna learn a lot. Here's Tracy Lawrence on the Marty Smith Podcast. First of all, it's just so damn cool to get to sit with you and, and spend time. I am fearless in my fandom of all you guys, especially from the 90s. Thank you. Uh, that's my soundtrack of my youth, not trying to. I, I'm 45, Tracy. So, uh, high school years and college years when, when you, you were just on fire, and we'll get into all that. But I got to start with. George Jones hitting you in the nuts. Oh, boy. What yeah. the hell, man? Well, George was George. George could do whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> and uh, nobody – who's going to say anything to George Jones? After everything that he's been through and the life that he had lived, uh, you know, you, you just learned how to protect yourself. <laughs> how, how, so, how – I'm sure you probably remember the first time this happened. Oh, absolutely. What, it happened what three, was four, the context? So, we would be walking – you know, so the first – when my career took off, the first big tour that I had was with George Jones. Yeah. So, we're out doing a and everything. Well, we would typically go do meet and greet together before the show because he, he he had me, he had John Anderson, and he had Mark Chestnut. They kind of rotated us through. Sometimes there'd be two of us, sometimes it'd be one, whatever the situation was. So we would typically go do meet and greet together. Well, we'd be walking down the corridor and he'd just be, oh, what was it? Just back at you, right? <laughs> just, just bow, take a bow, son. <laughs> and just laugh. It's like, you old bastard. <laughs> Did you, at some point, though, you got to be like, all right, I'm going to pay his ass back. Well, no, but it's George they, Jones, George so you Jones, can't do that. You just you just learn to protect yourself. It's hilarious, man. I just I loved him, man. He was good to me, and he uh, he taught me a whole lot, you know. And I, I'm glad to say this: my relationship with George was after George had made a lot of life changes because I heard some stories where George wasn't that pleasant to be around, and he was pretty volatile. But all I, I knew a sweet old man that had a great sense of humor that that really was unpretentious about who he was and where he had been. Uh, you know, he was he was just George, man. I, it, it was really a cool experience, man, to, to have that relationship with him early on in my career. I, I imagine it had to have been surreal oh. early early on in it. When yeah. when you when you get, would y'all sit on the bus after shows oh, or yeah. and just fellowship? Yeah. What what's that like? You know, it was it was. That the fellowship then was not old boys getting together and having a few shots and stuff like most of us still do out on the road. Nancy would put a pot of uh, a crock pot of pinto beans or something on all day, and she'd have food and stuff. So you'd sit over there, and, and Nancy would feed you, and you'd talk with George for a little bit, and then of course we'd go be young and do the things that young boys do while George went on down the road. <laughs> so let's uh, let's just start in Atlanta, Texas. All right, and then we move on to Arkansas. Yep. 
What what was growing up like for you? What was what what was childhood like? I don't have a lot of memories of East Texas. Uh, uh, my mother remarried when I was I think she married in April. I turned four in January, and she married remarried my stepdad in April when we moved to Southwest Arkansas. So most of my memories kind of start at that point. Uh, uh, but I went to, from kindergarten through 12th grade in forming former school system right there in southwest Arkansas. Now, I would go back. My grandparents and, and the Lawrences, all my relatives and everything, were still in East Texas and Atlanta, Queen City. So I spent all of my holidays, my summer breaks, my Christmas breaks. Every time I got a break, I was back down in East Texas. But I never went through the school system, so I didn't really get that Texas indoctrination, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but I, but I, did, I did experience the culture a whole lot, so it was a big part of my life. You are very proud. Our Kansan, though. Oh, yeah. Very, very proud. I, I, I know how to call the hogs. <laughs> so I got to share this with you. So me and Justin Moore were out last year. And I, I you know, I love, I love college football, big college football fan. So uh, the LSU had just won the national championship. So this would have been not last year. Uh, yeah, it would have been 19, they won the yeah. Natty. And, yeah, and then so it was 20, the last season? It, was, it would have been 2020 when they won the national championship because yeah, everything correct. shut down correct. in March. Correct. So Justin and I had just been out on tour. We started touring the middle part of January. And so the LSU had just won the national championship, and we're in Baton Rouge playing the Cajun Dome in, in February now. And so we get done. A month me, later. A month later, yeah. me and Justin come out on stage to do our encore together, and I got the whole arena to call the Hawks. Stop it. Yes, I did. Justin looked at me and he said, you are crazy. I got that LSU crowd to call the hogs for me from that stage, and everybody in the whole building did it. It was awesome. It's so fun. <laughs> He's a great friend of mine, and it's so fun to hear he, how excited he is to spend time with you and be around you. What, what's y'all's relationship? You know, it's growing. Uh, you know, it's uh, – uh, it, it's, uh, it's really different. All these young kids, man, everybody has a different lens of the world than what we did. I tend, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Sometimes I put people off a little bit because I lean into the wind still. Uh, but it's always been my personality. That's the way I am. Did the fine lead into the wind? We mean uh, call the hogs. It, like, it, like screw y'all. Yeah, I'm gonna do me. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And and I uh, everything is a competition to me. And and uh, but I always thought that's the way everybody was supposed to be. How was that competitive nature honed or built? I don't know. You know, it's just. Uh, 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 an extreme amount of confidence. I think in any level of entertainment, whether you're an athlete, whether you're an actor, whatever kind of performer you are, if you don't have a little bit of that to a degree, then you're probably chasing the wrong dream. Because if you don't have some of that kill or be killed mentality, you will get chewed up and spit out real quick. And I've always believed that you've got to be tough or they'll eat you up. Absolute truth. Yep. Uh, that is absolute truth in a lot of ways because ego drives so many people that are in inter I'm gonna call it entertainment. It is, and it's an ego, and there, there's you can lose you can lose a grip on that at times too. And I've been guilty of that too. I think we all have when when the fame and the, all that stuff kind of get overwhelming, you get a little bit big for your britches, is what my mom would say. But <laughs> I, I think as I've gotten older, I've I've, I've kind of got a better grip on it than what I did when I was younger. You learn what comes with fame. You don't expect. You know, you, I feel like you, you lose a lot of stuff. And, and uh, I got a song out from my, my second package of the trilogy that's coming out this year. That uh, Hindsight title, 2020. Uh, yep, the, yep. The second album, the title track is called The Price of Fame, and I did a duet with Eddie Montgomery. 
uh, and and it talks about just the things that that you have to give up. You know, I've, there's a whole lot of me that I've had to give away, and so much I won't let them take. And people ask me, what does that mean? I'm like, you don't realize it. The, the dance recitals and the, and the t-ball games and the, the things that you miss that you can never get back and and how it affects your kids and all these things you know uh, I knew what I was getting into my wife I was already well into my career when my wife and I met and she married me the kids had no choice in the matter they're born into it so it it has its challenges and it has its uh, drawbacks and everybody sees the world through a different lens and sees how they fit into that picture completely different. And my children have had struggles with it like everybody else. You are emotional right now. Oh, yeah. I absolutely. see it. Yeah. Explain. Uh, it, because it's my, my selfish desires have had an adverse effect on people that I love. And uh, there's not really anything I can do about it at this point. This thing is, is what it is. And I wish that I could find a way to instill the love and the passion for it into them that I have. And at the very least, find something that they are that passionate about that, that they're willing to push everything out of the way. Even when you stray over here and you drink a little bit much or you get in a bad relationship or whatever, I've always had that thing, that, that center to come back to. And I've always felt very blessed that I had that. And I wish, if I could have one wish for my children, is that they find something that gives them center and peace in their life that always brings them back to, to zero, that always brings them home. So you said something there that I want to expound on. I feel the same way. Uh, I travel all over the world in my regular job with ESPN, chasing sports and, and whatnot. And about my wife, who is the most selfless person, she's a champion for Prayer warrior, probably. It, yes. <laughs> Mine is. But, but to your point earlier, if mama is invested, the kids are invested without even knowing it. So I wonder, with age and as your career evolved, how did your kids do with dad being gone? Was it a, man, that is pretty damn awesome that my dad's song is on the radio and my friends think my dad is amazing? Or was there some sort of resentment that dad's job takes him away from us? I think my older daughter grasped it a little bit better. Uh, my younger one has been put off by it. Uh, we had gone, she went and worked out with me the other day, went to the gym, worked out, and, and went, to a, went to a little breakfast place and had some breakfast when we got done. And just randomly, one of my songs came on the speaker that was above the table, and you see, she just goes, <laughs> Did she It just really? completely deflates her. Because the next step to her is like, who played it and what's going to happen now? Why somebody's going to come up and interrupt our moment and our time together? And it's just it's you can just see the air come out of her and it and what am I going to do about it? Yeah, you know. And so the, those are part of the things that are just part of the process. But you know, you you hope as as they grow through it and and life changes and, and we. We all look back on our childhood as we become adults and have our own family and have a much different perspective of what, how, and why our parents did what they did. No question. Comparatively speaking, you know, and, and I think you, we all understand a little bit more, even if we might not agree with all the ways that they handle things. And, and I think as parents, we try real hard not to do the same things that our parents did to us. But in that, we overcompensate and we do things that affected them just the same. It's just different stuff. So I don't think there's any way of escaping any of that. I mean, it's just part of the process of life. And every child is completely different. They, they deal with things different. They, they have different dreams and different goals. And, and they view how they fit into that picture completely different. One of the hardest things to do what you just said, how competitive you are, but that you can find center. One of the hardest things to do, 
when you're an uber competitive individual is to be where your feet are. To not think about, okay, I'm here today and I get the great opportunity to be with Tracy Lawrence, but man, I got that next. I'm going here next and here next and here next and here next. Wow. What's the challenge for you to be where your feet are? That's really hard because I'm already thinking three to five years down the road. Uh, and you know, but we all are. You know, this thing right here, I don't, I don't go to a doctor's appointment, or a dentist appointment, take a meeting that as soon as I'm done, the next appointment is not put in immediately. If yep. it's not in that calendar, I'm, I'm functioning out of that calendar all the time. So you learn to, to build your world around that. And, and, and I fought it for a long time because I thought it took away my free spirit, so to speak. Uh, so being able to be right here at the moment where your feet are, and, and using that analogy, I don't think I've ever heard it quite put that way, but that's a challenge for me. Tracy Lawrence, ladies and gentlemen, is about to pull out his phone, and he's going <laughs> to write that line down, because later when he meets with somebody, they're going to write that song. I better get credit. No, I'm totally kidding. Uh, let's, well, let's, one of the best just left here a while ago. What a, what a man. He's, he's unbelievable. I have a lot of respect for that. Me too. So do I. When and how did music enter your sphere? Your life. You know, my earliest memories uh, would be of Glenn Campbell and Charlie Pride, like three, four years old. I, that those are some of the earliest memories that I have, and I remember watching Glenn Campbell on the Glenn Campbell Big Time Variety Show, yeah, man. man. So that's my early introduction to country music, and I would part my hair like Glenn, you know, do the whole <laughs> thing, you know. Uh, so I, I had a love for it way back then, uh, and and I I pounding around on a guitar, you know, but I really, uh, George Strait came out in the early 80s when I was about 12 years old, and uh, I already was aware of who Merle Haggard was, and I was learning to play songs because I could sing Haggard's voice. I, I could kind of fit in that pocket, and most of those early songs are, you know, three, four chords. They're pretty simple, and uh, that was my foundation of realizing that I had a, a decent voice and I could emulate these guys that I liked a lot and I was learning how to play the guitar and then Strait came along, really got very obsessed with George Strait early on. Those first few albums were just that Texas sound with that honky-tonk fiddle, I really dug that stuff. So that was really, that was where I, I say the fire got lit, where I really realized that, that I had a talent didn't know what I was going to do with it or how I was going to get there, but I was very determined from that point on that I was going to I was going to make it to the music business. So I, that's what I knew. When did you decide that it was right to come here and chase it? I read that Mama wanted you to go into the ministry or something. Yeah, I had a scholarship to go to a, a, a Methodist university, and that just wasn't for me because I'd done a lot of stuff in the church. I was very active in a small town, you know, singing choir and all that stuff. Uh, but that wasn't where my heart was. That's what wasn't what I was being led to do. But I'd never been to Nashville before. So I, I went to college on a mass comm scholarship for a while, studied radio, television production, did the choral ensemble thing. You know, I did a couple of years of that. It's like, this ain't working. So I left and went work construction that summer, that second summer out of college and worked construction all summer long. And then I, I got a, an offer from a band over in Louisiana that was playing a little club circuit there. So I moved to Louisiana and started you know, working weekend club circuits. There was about five or six clubs around we'd play. And, you know, I got a job working at a landscape company during the week and all that stuff. And I, I remember we'd kind of pound, beat the bushes pretty hard there for a while. And it was a lot of older guys. And I, I told them, I said, this would have been about 1989. And if you look back in that period right there, 
You've got Alan Garth Jackson, Brooks, Alan Jackson, Clint Black, Vince Gill, Tritt. Mark Chestnut, Travis Tritt. So that's when country changed. Yes, it did. And I and I was I was watching this. So I'm working all these songs up and all right, the Jude Box. Yeah. I'm doing all that stuff in my club set, and I'm like, if I'm gonna go, now's the time to go. Because if I don't, I'm gonna wind up marrying some little girl. I'm gonna get a get a couple of kids and a job, and then I'm gonna be stuck here, and I ain't never gonna get away. And I'm like, if I'm gonna go, now is the time to go. So I packed up everything I had and and canceled all the club bookings. But the last weekend, went down there. They collected money at the door for me. Put about seven hundred dollars in my pocket, and I packed up and went to Nashville, with no intentions of ever coming back, come hell or high water. <laughs> yeah. Most people in this town, most artists, are seven-year overnight successes. I think it took you seven months yeah. to get a record deal. Yeah. How, how did all that unfold? Who'd you meet, and what was that timeline? I, when, I, when I was growing up, the way that I started performing, I, I played the county fair when I was 14, a little talent show in the county fair, and got beat by my baby sister, which was No awful. way. Was Have you ever lived that down? Oh, yeah. Well, she's, <laughs> my, she's a sweet. She's very sweet. She she always hated it because she knew how bad I wanted it. But she was, you don't, you know, I'm 14, 15 years old, and she's, I'm playing a big city on my guitar and doing my thing, and she's singing with the piano company and been doing the Rose by Bette Midler. You know, you, you can't beat that. I'm, you had no all shot, I had bro. no shot. But anyway, so there's a deputy sheriff there that I met, and him and his wife would go around to these jamboree halls. And he would play Jerry Lee Lewis style piano, and awesome. she'd sing Patsy Cline stuff. So there was there was about four or five of them around. Either they were old movie theaters that had, had been converted, and so on Saturday night she would have these places, and they would do an hour with a house band with young kids doing a song or two, and then they'd take an intermission, and then the headliner would come in, and they would play these these shows with these entertainers and stuff. So this deputy sheriff started taking me around to all these jamboree halls and got me on stage with a, singing with a band and stuff. So that was kind of my family. Foundation. Well, when I got to Nashville, the first thing I did, I, I started, uh, I, I found out where the, the road musicians and the songwriters and everything were hanging out. There were several clubs like the Broken Spoke and Gabe's and uh, Trinity Lane and, and the Rose Room. So there was a handful of these places where the, where the roadies hung out. And so I started going and, and doing these contests and getting on stage where anybody would let me get on stage and sing. That led me to meeting people that were working at this supper club over in Kentucky called Live at Libby's, which was a steakhouse, and they had the same kind of Opry House theater thing. They had their George Jones impersonator and their Johnny Cash impersonator, and they had a house band with a lot of great players, so I got invited to come over there. So I get to town in September of 90. Well, in December, I start playing on this show as a regular every wow. weekend. And so I'd done two or three shows there, and, and like December, so right before Christmas, I remember some executives from Atlantic had come to the show one night, and there was a guy from Kentucky that was managing a young female act that I that, that was working the show kind of regularly there, and they'd come to see her, and they liked me better. And uh, the wheels started turning, met what would become my management team there that night, a couple of executives from Atlantic. In January, I did a showcase at the Bluebird Cafe, which is where I met the head of the label, Rick Blackburn. He agreed to sign me, and in May of 91, I cut Sticks and Stones, had three number one records in the top five. It's an un it's, it's, it's it's, unheard it's not, of It's story. not realistic. It's yeah. not, it's, it doesn't happen to anybody. It just doesn't. So, you know, it goes back to that getting too big for your britches. I got pretty big for my britches there for a while. <laughs> those those first few records were just oh, absolute man. downhill runaway freight trains. Yeah. 
when you're living that fast, I, I, I just can't imagine what it must have been like to live that fast when you're having that much, not commercial success, you're selling out shows, you hard ticket king, yeah. whole thing. And we talked a little earlier about, man, you can lose yourself pretty quickly. Was there a moment when you were like, man, I might need to rein this in just a little bit? And no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's a, at that point, it's the rock and roll mentality. Yep. It's uh, get it all. You, you know, you don't. You, and, and I think at some, some place inside you, you don't think you're going to live past 30 anyway. You know, that's like, let's get all of it we can get. You don't know how long it's going to last. And you just want to overindulge in everything. I mean, there's no really, I, I don't know any other way to put it. And we didn't have all the eyes on us like you, we do nowadays with the social media and the yep. camera phones and all that stuff. I mean, we were, we were, we were, we were wild. <laughs> I, uh, you know, if, if you look through some of those songs, like we can't go through the records record by record, but I, would, I do want to hit on a couple of these songs and I want you to tell me the, just the impact. It comes right off the top of your head. All right. Okay. Texas Tornado. That was the first record that I ever had that impacted young kids. And I don't know what made it happen. Because uh, up to then, all my stuff had kind of been very honky-tonk, kind of young. You know, you got adolescent skewed, 20-somethings. 20, 20 it was real honky-tonk, very aggressive crowd, and you very, very, very traditional, just honky-tonk stuff. That one, for some reason, I don't know if it's because mamas had told their kids, your room looks like a tornado hit it, or whatever it is. <laughs> that song, all of a sudden, I got seven, eight-year-old kids coming to the show singing Texas Tornado back to me. It was very impactful. That's cool. If the world had a front porch. Wow. That was, uh, that was. It's applicable a, right now. It was, it was nostalgic in, in a way. It, it was, it was kind of down home. It was, it was something different that I hadn't done yet. And it was, it was a lot of pieces in that song were written out of true memories of my life, which was the first time I'd really recorded something that was that semi-autobiographical. If the good die young. Oh. I remember that video. Yeah. That video was awesome. That that song kind of kicked things up to another level. It it kind of took me to that new place that was a little bit edgier. Was that the third? That second album. Uh, that would have been uh, third. I think second or third single. Yeah, something like that. I believe it was. And I remember when we were recording this. This will tell you how much the music industry's changed. So, uh, like I said, always leaning in the wind. Uh, when we tracked that record. Uh, the label really didn't care for it that much, and it had a screaming rock and roll guitar solo on it. And back then, you know, too much guitar, too much guitar. They made us go back in and put a fiddle solo on that record. Nowadays, nobody has said anything about it. But back then, that was that was pushing the envelope a little too hard. I interviewed Travis Tritt for this same podcast, and of course, he kind of went through that same situation that you're talking oh, about, yeah. where it put some drive in your country, just like I bet he had to fight the label tooth and nail over it. He did. Yeah. He did. And that's why? some of my favorite stuff of his. Why? Why would? Why were they because so hard-headed about it? Sell more records. Okay. And but but and that's something that I've always been frustrated with labels. This is off the topic, and I'll, I'll let you get back to it. But labels, in their mind, they don't really care about your live show. They don't care about your endorsements. They don't care about anything but selling records. Because that back then, that was the only thing that they got a piece of. And the things that really impact are are love songs. 
I swear. Yes. Which I couldn't do. It's not my thing. And they tried to get me to do that kind of stuff. And they forced it on John Michael. John Michael wanted to be like Leonard Skinner. You know, so you there comes a point when you really have to stand up for yourself because you're the one that's got to go out there and sing them every night. And you're... You, you need a balance in your show. You can't go out there and do a show full of ballads. If it was up to the labels back then, every song on the radio would have been a ballad because they say it sells more records. But you're building a body of work that, that you're going to be able to work with forever. So that, there, was, there was always friction with that. So it, No, but you're so right. I, I, and I've heard that from a lot of your peers, young and old, that the labels don't take the time to actually come see the energy exchange in the show. Yeah. They don't see what people are gravitating to. They don't see what makes the people lose their minds. And a lot of times when you... Uh, Why? It, shouldn't that be part of the job or not? It, it should be. It should be. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just glad to be out of that, that yeah. part of it now. <laughs> but yeah, I had, I had my turn in the box. But I, I learned through that process that... And, and you'll see young artists now do it. And they, so they asked me what my best advice is. Learn to bend when you have to, and when you get an opportunity to take advantage of a situation, take it. You know, when you when you can be aggressive and you can command the situation, take advantage of it. Because if you don't, they'll run all over you. But when, but you also have to learn when you have to bend. When you get leverage, you better take it. How close have you come to pushing too far? <laughs> uh, uh, really close. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh that laugh was about as good an answer as I could ask for. So I just read the other day that Time Marches On was almost not, I know you yeah. you put it on hold first, yeah. but what almost happened? So here's the, here's the lay of the land. I want the whole story. The lay of the land. So I, I had been working with James Stroud, the first three albums, that was Sticks and Stones, Alibis I Sit Now. And uh, I love James. James and I are still good friends. He's like a father to me. I have the utmost respect for him. But I needed to make a change. I, I needed to make a So I decided I was going to go work with Don Cook. Don Cook, obviously, at the time was working with Brooks and Dunn. Don's office was over at Sony Tree, which is where Bobby Braddock's office is and Paul Nelson, all the guys that I'd been working with through the years. So Don, I was sitting at Don's, in Don's office. He was at his desk. And I remember Bobby Braddock bounces in the office. He had just gotten Time March's own mix. He just got it done. I mean, he walked up because the studio's downstairs. So he walked up and he's like, let me play this for you, let me play this for you. So I immediately fell in love with it, put it on hold right then. Well, just lucky that I was there because he left and went right to, to Ronnie Dunn and played it for Ronnie. And Ronnie tried to put it on hold and I said, no, we've already got this for Tracy. So it, it was that quick. And if I hadn't have been there to say yes myself, it probably would have passed right That's by. crazy. Yeah. Uh, what song, like which one of these do you feel like is the defining song of your career? And it might not be one we've mentioned, but what, what do you think that song is? So, Time Marches On to me is the best lyric I've ever recorded. Uh, I, I think the way he crafted that song is masterful. I mean, you're talking about multiple generations of a family in three and a half minutes. Very descriptive. You can close your eyes. You can see the tapestry. That's, that's the mark of a true poet. And Bobby's that, that kind of genius. But then you go back without sticks and stones, none of them would have followed. You break the sophomore jinx, Alibis was a double platinum record. Massive, massive record. I love that one. And then you come back and you get to paint me a Birmingham after, you know, some, a lot of number one records in the middle. And, and what a lot of people don't realize, Birmingham was the most impactful record that I ever have. It was, it was massive, but it never went number one. Yeah, but I, but, uh, so I understand yeah. the badge of honor that is the yeah. number one. Yeah. 
But there are so many number one songs. And I know it's a huge deal oh, for yeah. the writers and, and artists, and it can make an artist's career and all that. But there, a lot of them aren't copyrights. Like, we're, when was Birmingham? Night, 2003, two, okay. something like that. 20 years ago. Yep. Everybody knows everywhere. Dude, I close the show with it every night, and it brings the house down. There, you can't follow it. It's it was a massive record. Uh, but golly, you know, and then you know, you come back back with that and do find out who your friends find are. Find out who your friends are. Yep. Those those were career songs uh, on on anybody's radar, and what, I've been blessed with a sack full of them. What was the impact in that time in your career with a song like that with those two guys, Tim and? McGraw and Kenny Chesney, who are the absolute hugest artists in the format yep. at the time, doing a song like that with those guys. It was huge. Uh, and it was very, there was a lot of things going on at that particular time because that was, I just left the major label world. I was on my own imprint, so I'm funding all this stuff myself now. So I've got a staff and, and managing myself, got my own staff outsource promotion staff that was that was a very validating time where I, I got to prove that I really knew how to do this and so if, if asked what is the most gratifying thing that's happened in my career taking that record to number one on my own label and being able to prove to a lot of people that I really have a good grasp of what's going on around me what'd you prove to yourself that uh, I didn't have anything left to prove that that was when I kind of took a breath and said, you know, I'm going to be all right. And, the, and that was probably the first time that I realized that I didn't have to lean into the wind all the time. Wasn't Birmingham written, it, Birmingham wasn't written about Alabama, right? No. You know, and, and the great thing about a song like that is it's always, it's always left open to personal in, interpretation right. where it can be whatever you want it to be. But from the writers themselves, what I learned later on the process is that Birmingham is a style of lake house. So oh. you're not only wanting to get back to that moment in time, you're wanting to get back to that place. You've got this visual imagery about that time and place of where you want to go back to. Of course, it could have been at a lake in Birmingham. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you can take it any way you want to take it. All right, a couple more things. I'll let you, I'll leave you alone, let you go live your life. I want to talk about when you got hurt. Okay, so so you're on this trajectory. You're about to put a record out, right? That's the timeline. Walk me through the entire timeline, exactly what happened, because there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this who don't know this story. You know, I uh, we had finished all the tracking. Everything was done with the record. Uh, a, a friend of mine that I had graduated high school with it was coming through town. She was spending the night, and then she was going on to see some other friends of ours up in Indiana, Illinois, wherever they were living at the time, some other folks we graduated with. She was just passing through town. So I had, uh, I think I had done the background vocals on Somebody Paints the Wall, and that's the last thing I had to do on the Sticks and Stones record, and everything was done. It was getting ready to go off to be mixed. And we'd gone out to some of those places where I hung out with the local musicians and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was bringing her back to her hotel room, pulled up in the parking lot, and open the door to a pistol in my face you know so it was it was that random that out of nowhere uh, made us get out of the car uh, took my belt off of me made her get out of the car there was three guys two pistols guy without a pistol had my belt he was popping my belt so they made us start walking they put her in front and they want to take her to her room we want to go to your room so they start two of them 
one guy with a gun, one guy with a belt is with, with her. And then I'm coming around, so there's a little space. There's a corner at the back of the building. And so by the time I get up and make the corner, she's already at the next corner where there's a hall that goes all the way up to the front of the hotel. And uh, when I rounded the corner and saw that there was some separation, I just turned around and hit the guy right in the mouth. I grabbed the pistol and shot my finger. And uh, so they all turn around and come back at me, and she takes off and runs to the front office. Well, they empty both pistols on me, hit me four times. Drop me right there in the parking lot. I can hear the bullets bouncing off the pavement around my head. When they run out of bullets, they take off. That's pretty much it. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, how, were, were, were they ever caught? Yeah. At, no? Let me say this. What did that do to you, man? I mean, so obviously. Here's, the, here, here's, here's the worst part of it, and there, there, is, a, there is a point to it, and, I, and this, it gets frustrating to talk about it after a while. I never, the physical stuff has caused me problems over the years, but I never got any mental help. And I was angry because I felt like they'd tried to take my life and my career away from me, tried to take my dream away from me, whether it's dark forces, however you want to look at all that. But I was mad for a long time, and I just pushed it down, just pushed it down, get back to it, get over your physical stuff, get back out there. And it caused me to have a lot of problems in relationships. It caused me a lot of problems in my life. And I wasn't able to resolve that till many, many years later. So my point being is anytime you go through any kind of traumatic thing where you have any kind of PTSD, whether it's a, a violent assault or, or whatever the situation is, get the mental help that you need because if you don't deal with it, it's gonna resurface at a time that's gonna cause you a lot of pain and a lot of heartache later in life. Yeah, and there's absolutely no shame None in getting whatsoever. help. We understand all. more about it now than we did back yeah. then. I think there's a lot, they have better terminology for all of it, being able to describe it. Uh, but it's a very real thing and it doesn't make you weak or, or, or frail or anything to, to face the fact that you need to talk to somebody. Yeah, that's a beautiful statement. Yeah. And a lot of people need to hear it right now, man. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. A couple more. Uh, let's go back to Hindsight 2020. Why was Eddie Montgomery the right guy to share that song with? Because I don't think anybody has lost more through this whole dream. Eddie's, Eddie's, Eddie's lost a lot. We've all, I mean, we've all lost friends and loved ones, but you know, Eddie lost a son, he lost his dad, he lost his, he lost his partner, you know, and that was, that was pretty rough on all of us. That one, that one hit me harder. I've seen a lot of people go in the last, you know, 30 years that I've been here, people that I've got close to, peers, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of people come and go. The way, the way that that whole thing happened with Troy, that one hit me pretty hard because if I'd have been there, I'd have sit, been sitting in the seat right next to him when I thought a thing about it, whether it was a race car, helicopter, jet, I, none of it ever stopped either one of us. And it, it just, he just happened to be the guy that was in the seat when it went down. And uh, it's, it's devastated Troy, uh, Eddie's life, it has. And I, and I knew that Eddie would be the voice that could come in that would, you, you know that he has, he's hurt, he's been through it, he understands it. Was it therapeutic for you guys? It was. I love Eddie, man. We've been friends a long time. You know, I have a great deal of respect for him. And I love his voice. I think he's got such a unique voice. I think he's just a great singer. What's coming up here for you? This year is going to be wide open. I'm I'm almost done. Second album is uh, coming out August first week of August, I believe. Something, whatever it is. Uh, Price fame. Uh, so the third one, uh, we are scheduled to go in on, I believe, the fourth of August, 
and finish tracking. Uh, I've got one more song to write, and I'm going to try to knock that out this week. And we'll be going in and finishing up everything for that third package. And then once I get done, I, I say once I get done with this year, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't really want to get back on the 100 show a year grind like what I've done in the past. Taking the time off last year during COVID really kind of woke me up a little bit. Right now we're just playing catch up. But I think once I get through this year with all the, all the music that we're putting out and all the heavy tour schedule, I think I'm going to take a breath and kind of reevaluate and maybe slow the pace down a little bit. I was yeah. say, how did COVID wake you up? You know, it took me a while to, to get off the treadmill. Yeah, I kept, you know, I kept thinking we're going to go back to work. We're going to go back to work. You know, we shut down the middle part of March. And that's like, ah, oh, we'll be back by, out by May. And then, oh, by surely July, we'll be back on the road. And then as we lost all our dates in July, and you start to realize. And then it's like, okay, what am I going to do? Then you kind of reinvent your routine and make a lot of changes. And as, as you kind of settle into it, going back to work was a little bit hard. I was excited about it, but I was had a little trepidation about whether or not I was going to be able to keep up the pace because, I mean, we run hard and it's it took me a little bit to settle back in and i you know i just there's there's a lot more life than than grinding it out on a bus to your 80. amen Look, i like the fish i, I heard that I like the golf like the fish all of it i i know how busy you are i appreciate you taking the time to share your life with me brother yes, uh absolute pleasure thank you so thank much thank you so yes, much man yeah it's not every day that you get the opportunity to sit down with a guy like him and for him to be so honest and so open about how he let his ego get away from him and how when you're successful that quickly, it all comes crashing in. And I was so moved when he was talking about what you have to give away. When you achieve fame and you achieve success, it always comes with a price. And seeing the emotion that Tracy still carries about what he had to give away, that precious time with his kids and his family. And you heard him say right there at the end how the pandemic really rewrote that for him. There's a whole lot more to life than living on the road 100 or 150 days a year. I can actually relate to that. I say all the time that time is our most precious resource. You can't manufacture it, you can't corral it, you can't get it back. And isn't it apropos that time marches on, he says, might be the defining song of his career. So grateful for Tracy. It was killer to get to spend that time with him. And thank you guys for spending your time with us. This is the Marty Smith Podcast here at Outsider. Be well, everybody. <laughs>